At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Thank you, Derek. Thank you all for um, that warm welcome and for having me here at Woodside. Uh, I've spoken at various campuses uh, for Woodside, uh, mostly, usually the Troy campus, but um, when I was uh, asked to speak uh, here at this, uh, the Royal Oak campus, I was jumping at the chance because I haven't seen it yet. Uh, but I always feel uh, very much a sense of welcome and family uh, with Woodside. Um, uh, you guys are doing wonderful things uh, outside the walls of these church and also within the walls of these church, this, this, these churches, these various campuses. And I'm just so grateful to be a part of it. Thank you once again for having me and for letting me be a part of uh, your Sunday worship and your Sunday service. <coughs> and this, this uh, series is uh, quite interesting because when they asked uh, me to do it, and they said this is what the series is going to be about, it's going to go through a, the book of Jonah. Um, it's this short but incredibly important book uh, for a number of reasons. And I'm going to go into a couple of these reasons. Um, <clears throat> but the, fu- the fundamental uh, point that we're going to stress is this whole theme of Jonah at odds with God and what does defiance actually look like. And I'm going to talk about opening up the scriptures because I'm focusing on the first three verses of Jonah. Um, and uh, the temptation is to go into many more. Uh, the Word of God, uh, for me at least, and I know for a lot of you, has this ability or this uh, maybe even, um, uh, for lack of a better word, temptation to slide into other verses as you read other verses and you want to get ahead of the game and that kind of thing. So pumping the brace and patience is going to be something I'm going to try to do today. I didn't do the best job of the whole world on pumping the brakes on some things during the first service because I love this book actually, even as sort of dismal as it might seem. Uh, if you're familiar with the book, you might uh, recognize that it's not a happy ending in one sense, uh, but it is an instructive ending. And the, the beginning isn't all that happy either. Uh, <clears throat> but as we get into this, this topic of defiance, um, if I were to ask a question, and the question would be this, what word do you think characterizes the state of our culture, the ethos, or, or better yet, the pathos, the passion of the culture right now? What word sort of characterizes how we're expressing ourselves towards each other, towards the powers that be, whether it's government or whatever it might be, or even towards God? Defiance. That's a great way to summarize a lot of the fist-shaking that's been happening in our world whether you're on this side of the aisle, that side of the aisle, or smack in the middle, we're either shaking our fist at someone or shaking our fist about someone and sometimes shaking our fist at God himself. Uh, Jonah did that. That happened. But as we begin, I'm, I'm, I am reminded of a story. And I think about this story uh, every so often, and I've given this, to, uh, this story before. It's a story that uh, circulated as true. I'm not sure it is true. It's probably not, but it um, sounds true-ish. Um, uh, it's a story that circulated in the United States Navy uh, decades ago. And it's the story of this flotilla of U.S. naval ships that are crossing the North Atlantic, <coughs> going from east to west, on a very dark, very foggy, hard-to-see night. And as they're crossing the North Atlantic, trying to get home, they see a light directly in their path. And the captain of the U.S. naval ship, the, the lead ship, says, um, uh, this is the captain of the USS Abraham Lincoln, uh, please change your course 15 degrees, that's 1-5 degrees to the south, to avoid a collision. And in, in very, a very informal, almost snarky, defiant tone, uh, he gets a voice back that says, sorry, you move, you change your course 15 degrees and we'll be fine. 
well, the captain is a little bit perturbed by this, but he's trying to measure his patience, and he says, I say again, this is the captain of the USS Abraham Lincoln. This is the second largest battleship in the North Atlantic fleet of the United States Navy. I direct you to move your course 15 degrees, 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Confirm. And the voice comes back and says, hey, buddy, you're going to move. And now the captain is really upset. He says, I'm going to repeat. I am the captain of the USS Abraham Lincoln. Not only is it the second largest ship in the United States North Atlantic Fleet, but I'm accompanied by five destroyers and numerous support vessels. And if you do not change your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision, countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this vessel. Confirm. The guy times back, this is a lighthouse. Your call. <laughs> now, he could have told it was a lighthouse first, right? He could have done that. Um, the point of this story is essentially this is that we defy oftentimes thinking we're right. We defy oftentimes thinking we're powerful. And we have the right to defy. And so you have this powerfully armed, almost impossibly irresistible force coming at you. Or you're a part of this impossible to resist force because of all your armament. But the reality is you're just floating. You have no sure foundation. And you're coming up to this little lone light that's anchored to the landmass, to the sure unmovable. And you think you're the one in control. But the lighthouse is not there to defy the ships. Despite the defiant tone, the lighthouse is there to guide the ships, to avoid their destruction. He's not standing in front of them, shaking his fist, saying, I dare you to be destroyed. The lighthouse's purpose is to guide, is to provide a light in the middle of the darkness so that when you see the sure foundation, you don't dash yourself against it. Rather, you guide yourself into it. Defiance sometimes can stand for truth. It can stand up against that which is wrong and which is evil. But oftentimes, and this is the point of the book of Jonah, is sometimes we defy because we just want to defy. We just have our baggage. We have our stuff. We know what the Lord wants, and we want to do the opposite, and we do it anyway. So let's read from the text. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. It says it twice. Away from the presence of the Lord. It's said twice. Put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that. Because this is a terribly important, pivotal point of what I'm trying to get across when we talk about defiance and what defiance is all about. But the first thing I want to do is provide some context for the book of Jonah and actually... Talk about how rich this book actually is. It's a short book. It's not a long book. It's in the Minor Prophets, as it were. But oftentimes people are very familiar with the book of Jonah. And what's the most popular element of the book of Jonah? It's the fish or the whale. That's the most popular element of it. And people think that's the point. That's not the point. It's just the pivot point at which Jonah goes from utter defiance in action to simply obedience of action, but still a defiance of heart. Because he's not thrilled about going to the Ninevites. 
to preach repentance. I mean, their evil has come before the Lord. Jonah's okay with that. He's like, yep, they deserve it. And I'm going to destroy them. But the second part is, unless they repent. And you're going to preach repentance. Now, I can go on and on about this, by the way, and um, this is, I'm, I'm resisting temptation uh, to, uh, to do so. But um, <clears throat> God knows what's in Jonah's heart, and yet he picks Jonah to go do this. He knows Jonah doesn't want to. He knows Jonah has no love for the Ninevites. Jonah loves the people of Israel. He has spoken prophecies to the people of Israel. He has spoken these things to Israel, yet he doesn't want to do the same message to non-Jews. He's got hang-ups about that, and we'll get to that as well. And yet God, God in his sovereignty picks the man who doesn't want to do the job to do the very job he wants him to do. And so defiance looks very much like this. I am the Lord's servant, and I know what the Lord wants me to do, but I will not do it. Defiance is rarely accidental. It's rarely unintentional. Defiance, by definition, is intentional. You actually do it on purpose. Now, you might think it's subconscious, but it's very much on purpose. And the important point of, is this. And a, co- a former colleague of mine said it this way about Jesus' parables. Whenever, <laughs> whenever Jesus had a parable, and there was always a protagonist and an antagonist, if you always put yourself in the, an- in the protagonist's point of view, you've missed the point. And in this story with Jonah, I'd like us, uh, us to put ourselves in both Jonah's place and in the Ninevites' place. I'd like us to put our- ourselves both in those places because defiance is usually intentional. We know what the Lord wants and we do what we want. That's the very definition of defiance. So that's setting up the sort of emotional and spiritual tenor of what's going on in Jonah. But people often, because they focus on the whale story, think that Jonah is a fable. Um, Outside of the church walls especially, Jonah is seen as this fable that's meant to tell a story. They're not quite sure what the point of the story actually is because the whale is the whole point. Um, It's not the point at all. In fact, the book of Jonah is not actually about Jonah. It's about God and it's about his heart for people who deserve his wrath but he wants to give his mercy to. Now, the interesting thing about the book of Jonah is that we fabulize it. We create a sort of a Aesop's fables kind of a view of Jonah because it has these fantastical elements like a great fish or a great sea creature or a great whale <coughs> that swallows Jonah. Where Jonah, as he watches to see if God will destroy Nineveh, is sitting at the top of a hill and there's this wonderful plant that provides shade for, for Jonah and it's not there when he gets there. It grows miraculously provide shade for Jonah, but then God also sends this worm that has what it seems like its own tapeworm because it eats the whole plant. And this sounds sort of fabulous, right? Like a fable. But the reality is when you look at the indicia, the indications of historicity in the book of Jonah, you'll see it's nothing like a fable. Think of the fables we have. Almost every fable we ever read about is usually not placed at a certain time in a certain place with names that have genealogies. They usually start like this, once upon a time. What time? A time. Which time? Doesn't matter. Where? And they usually give you some city that has no basis in history whatsoever, like Camelot. Or no city at all. The kingdom. Who is the princess, the king, the, the, the princess of in most of these fables? We have no idea. 
And we don't get a genealogy. We don't get Snow White's genealogy. We don't know who her mom is. We don't know who her mom's mom is. We have no history of the White family whatsoever. <laughs> but look at the book of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. So you have some semblance of genealogy saying, and what does it say? Go to Nineveh. It references Joppa. It references Tarshish. These are real places. At a real, this is not fable language. This is not the kind of thing that fables are written about. This is the way you write history. This is the way you write history. So there's already some historical credibility built into the text itself. Now, I say this to you for a number of reasons. One is because, yes, there's a moral to this story, but don't let the moral fool you as to thinking that it's a fable much like Beauty and the Beast where, you know, you can overcome your demons or whatever it might be if someone really attractive helps you with it. Um, that's not the point. Uh, here, this is actually a moral of a story based in actual history, which means that because God moves in actual history, he can move in the actual present in your and my life as well. Rooting it in history is incredibly important. Now, I'll tell you this because I, as uh, a Christian apologist, that's what I do. I'm a Christian apologist. I'm, I'm really an evangelist, but I use apologetics in my evangelism. Now, if you're not familiar with the word apologetics, apologetics is not the art and science of being sorry. Um, uh, it comes from the Greek word apologia, which means defense. 1 Peter 3.15, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts and always being prepared provide a reason, an apologia, for the hope you have to anyone who asks, but do this with gentleness and with respect. And so an apologist is not somebody who goes about saying they're sorry all the time. They provide a defense for the Christian faith. Although there is a temptation when you do apologetics, when you find all these answers to all these big questions to show off how smart you are, in which case apologetics then becomes the art of making someone else sorry they asked you. Um, <laughs> So don't do that. But as an apologist, I see the anchor of history, the roots of history so important in the story of Jonah and in all the historical documents. And they're not all historical in the Bible. They're not even meant to be. But in the historical documents of the Bible, what we see is this idea of being rooted in history because it gives us confidence that, the, that, that historical roots lead to present-day fruit. It's very important for us to see this. But more than that, let me offer you one other bit of apologetic content about the book of Jonah. So when you do history, when you look through history, you're trying to find out if a historical document that you weren't there to see, and in fact no one around you has any close idea of uh, being there because it's happened so long ago, you try to find out certain indications about whether this is a reliable text. And one of the indications of a text's reliability, an ancient text's reliability, is called the principle of embarrassment. Now, when you look at legends and they grow up and they, and they sort of happen, is the heroes of the story are embellished. Their moral character is almost untarnished in any way, shape, or form. And they find some uh, challenge to meet and they rise to meet that challenge with absolute integrity and with absolute uh, 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 victory. When you find out in a document that the heroes don't look so heroic and they have some, some certain flaws in them, you certainly see Maybe this is actually historical because this person is not making something up like a legend we see in other instances. This person is telling you like it was. And in the book of Jonah, you have Jonah not coming across like the greatest guy in the whole world. The principle of embarrassment, what says is that 
embarrassing details in a document don't prove but tend to lean towards credibility. And Jonah is full of it. I mean, the book is full of that stuff. Um, uh, it's interesting that he wrote this book. If we assume that Jonah wrote this book, it means that the ending, he got the point. But he's humble enough to memorialize his failure. Open up your journal and publish it. How hard is that? And you've confessed your failure. So his defiance is there. It is there, but it's not a fairy tale. It's not a fairy tale for another reason. Is that Jonah is actually referenced in another book of the Bible, in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, at a specific time in 780 BC, speaking to a specific king, Jeroboam. So Jonah is well attested. And Jesus specifically references Jonah as a historical event. Do you remember the context of what's going on here? Is that Jesus and Jesus, you know, many, many years later, 780 years later, roughly, um, Jesus is talking to some folks, and they basically want to know, what sign do you give us to prove that you're the Messiah, that we should listen to you? And he says, a wicked generation looks for a sign. But no sign shall be given to this generation except for the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the heart of the fish for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. He's pointing to his death and his resurrection as a historical fact to come. And that analogy with Jonah only works if that actually happened in the past. And they know that it actually happened. So Jonah happened in the past as a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the future. So Jesus refers to it as something incredibly powerful for us. But there's one thing about Scripture that I love, and I can't help but talk about this over and over again, is the way in which Scripture, written centuries and centuries apart by multiple different authors using even different language, somehow braids itself together. Jonah is being tasked by the Lord to go preach repentance to a wicked and perverse city. And then Jesus is being asked by a wicked and perverse generation for a sign, and he gives them the sign of Jonah. It's like God wrote this book. <laughs> I'm going to go into another braiding later on because I love seeing that stuff in Scripture. Maybe it's my Middle Easternness. I don't know what it is, but I just love seeing the way the language is used in these artful braids and these rivets where God rivets truth together at certain points. But here is the ultimate point of these opening verses and in fact, maybe even the whole book of Jonah. And there's multiple points to it, which is why it's so rich and deserves its own ser series of, of, of sermons. The f it's this. Defiance looks like knowing what the Lord wants and then doing what you want. But the point that you have to get here is that defiance gets us nowhere. Defiance gets us nowhere. Now this is funny in one sense for this to be the point I'm trying to make here in a book where G jo Jonah seems to go just about everywhere. He goes from where he is down to Joppa to get a boat to Tarshish actually ends up on the way to Tarshish then gets thrown overboard because the guys, are, the guys in the boat are like, hey, if you did something wrong, and Jonah's, throw me overboard, maybe the Lord will have mercy on you, which he does, um, <clears throat> which is, I'm going to do it. Uh, 
cool all by itself because, again, unbelievers receive God's mercy just like the Ninevites will, and yet Jonah, who knows God's will, is being is bobbing up and down in the ocean waiting for a whale to come swallow him up. Um, so he goes from to, down to Joppa, over to Tarshish, almost gets, well, I don't know if he almost gets there or not, but he's swallowed up on the way there, then repents, gets vomited onto a seashore, and then ends up walking or going however he gets there, all the way to Nineveh, which is not close. It's in modern-day Iraq. It's in, the, it's, in the, it's in the Assyrian Empire, and it's the greatest city in the world at the time. It's 120,000 people, roughly. Which back then is an enormous city. That great city, as God calls it. So Jonah seems to go just about everywhere. And yet, his defiance gets him nowhere. His defiance gets him nowhere. Just like our defiance doesn't get us anywhere. Now let's take a pause for a moment for some self-reflection because this is an important point. We often would judge Jonah's defiance as brazen because it's so open. The Lord tells him, go to Nineveh, preach repentance. Jonah doesn't like Ninevites, and so he says no, and he runs from the presence of the Lord. We're thinking, my goodness, that is some open, brazen defiance. And then we judge him for it. Is our defiance any better? Or, I should say, less worse than Jonah's because it's not open? Maybe it's actually worse because it's less open. Our defiance in our own lives, yours and mine, can be subtle. Not because we're called on to do some great, wonderful task for the salvation of an entire city, but maybe we're called to do something small in our lives that will actually, as we all do it as a church, swell and build and make change in this country and make change in this society in a gracious way. Yes, in an upsetting way, but can be done in a gracious way, and yet we don't do it. Why? For whatever reasons we have our baggage for I want to give you one example of this, okay, as a way in which we don't do a great job of obeying the Lord and relying on him. Instead, we disobey the Lord and defy him. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How good are we at this? How good am I at this? I do it once in a while. I do. When I get convicted to go do it. But this is actually a lifestyle command. This is not a, hey, occasionally when you're feeling sanctimonious, pray for those who persecute you and love your enemies. Sometimes, by the way, your enemies are right. Maybe in praying for them, you come to realize it. Sometimes, no, we're, I don't want to say we're being persecuted necessarily in this country, because I think this word persecution gets thrown around a little too flippantly. If I'm just being honest with you, sorry if I upset you, but I think that that's a word that's pretty heavy. Um, and yes, it's becoming increasingly difficult in some ways to be a Christian in the West. That's true. I think cancel culture is a real thing. I think that a lot of stuff is challenging. The world is going to be quite challenging for them to be believers in. But has it risen to the level of persecution? The very fact that there's so many of us sitting in this room without having any permit to do so is evidence that we're not quite being persecuted. No one's looking at them, sitting up under the door with a machine gun, checking your papers to see converting from your original religion illegally. But it does get tough. And so we do worry about rights being taken or the school system being transformed into something that might not agree with our values. And those are things that we legitimately have to be concerned about. I get that 100%. But do we pray for those people or do we shake our fist at those people? 
we see them as worse than they actually are. And that's probably the most egregious sin of the whole thing, is that we don't see people as made in God's image. We see people as defying us. And in doing so, perhaps we defy God. Now, I'm not saying we should keep judgment upon ourselves, left, right, center, until you walk out of here feeling terribly guilty about yourself. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I am trying to do is say that Jonah is not alone in this story. You are supposed to put yourself in this story. <clears throat> As we think about the culture we're in right now, and a couple of the books that, I've, that are available here talk about some of the attitudes uh, in a post-truth world that we have, is that if you're on the right, the left are Ninevites. The left are these liars and these cheats and these swindlers and these awful people. If you're on the left, the, the, the right are all these awful people. Um, and if you're a moderate, man, the right and the left are full of these awful people. It's called the Hitlerization. I call it the Hitlerization of social commentary. If you don't agree with me, you have to be Hitler. You're some kind of a fascist. Whether you're
because I think eventually he got changed. These are little tiny signals of transcendence to quote Peter Berger of the Bible and its beauty and the way we should pay attention to this ancient book. I'm going to close with this. <clears throat> Jonah ran from God's presence only to realize Scripture just points to it. I mean, you see this over and over again. Those who defy God, but the gracious God pursues and pursues. And then he finally finds us at Calvary's Hill, looking at a cross, which is the exclamation point, the cross-shaped exclamation point to the phrase, for God so loved the world. He dies for you and for me because we have a heart like Jonah's. He died for Jonah because Jonah has his own heart, and we all have a Ninevite, a Ninevite in us. But he, pre he, he says that he's come to overtake this because he's paid the penalty you and I deserve to pay so that we don't have to pay it and his righteousness is imputed to us as our sin is laid on him. God is pursuing. Defiance does not last forever. And if you feel discouraged by your own defiance, can I encourage you with Francis Thompson's poem, The Hound of Heaven, where God pursues? Thompson writes, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter of vistas hope I sped and shot precipitated down titanic glooms of chasm fears from those strong feet that followed followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. Then later he writes, Flashy with, light, with flying lightnings round the spurned or their feet. Fear wist not to evade as love wist to pursue. Still with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, came on the following feet in a voice above their beat. Not shelters thee who wilt not shelter me. In other words, all the things you defy me for, they won't shelter you because they don't shelter me. The implication is that which does shelter the Lord in your heart will shelter you. And like that plant that covered Jonah, it can shelter. But if we don't have that defiance in our heart, it won't be given away. God is ever in pursuit and lovingly desires to conform your wills to her, your will to his. He changes your defiance to reliance. C.S. Lewis put it so beautifully. The great thing to remember is that though our feelings come and go, his love for us does not. It is not wearied by our sins or our indifference, and therefore it is quite relentless in its determination that we shall be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us, at whatever cost to him. Whatever your defiance costs you to give up, I can assure you it costs God infinitely more to break you of it and me of it. Trust him. Rely on him. Transform your defiance into reliance. We will not be sorry, each one of us, if we strive for this. Let's pray. Father, I thank you 
for the conviction of your word. I thank you for the braids you weave together through your scripture to show us that you care enough to give us not only a bunch of stories, but stories rooted in history so that we can root them in our lives in the present. I pray, Lord, that we take these words to heart and we take Jonah's example and not make it our own, Lord, but also maybe bring in Jonah's example the humility to bring our failures before one another, to confess our sins to one another and be healed, but also to change our wills and conform them to yours. May we seek you evermore. There are Ninevites out there who need your message. There are Ninevites inside of us that need your message. May we be transformed and help to be agents of transformation out there. Holy Spirit, reign in our lives. Give us that which we need. Conform our wills to yours. Father, thank you for the glorious gift of your Son. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.